I hope if you have your Bibles that you'll go ahead and make your way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All right. As you make your way there, let me, let me just give a little preface uh, before we jump into this text this morning. We're jumping into chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul's going to describe uh, a very difficult circumstance in the life of the church. There's gross immorality taking place, and he's going to state that. He's not going to linger over it, but he is going to say it and describe what's taking place. And so I just want to give as a preface, uh, I too will state what's taking place here so that we understand our context. I won't linger on this, but I do know that we do still have young kids in the, in the congregation, uh, among which are mine. Uh, so I just want to give that little preface just to, to parents, just that there is going to be a little portion here, just so you know, you're not surprised uh, that there is some immorality mentioned. Again, I won't go beyond the text. We won't linger on this, but I do want to give you a little heads up, a little preface, just with regards to the content of the text today, okay? So just so you know, uh, that's, that's in the text, all right? All right, with that said, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll jump into this. Father, I do thank you again for this morning, Lord, that you've given us it is a gift. And Lord, I, I this morning sense my own insufficiencies. And Lord, I just ask that you would fill me up this morning. Lord, that I might operate not in my own strength, but that of the Lord Jesus. Lord, that you might, by your Spirit, make me useful today. Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Lord, I trust that you have something for us, and I thank you for your word, that it is inspired, it is true, it is right, it is relevant. And Lord, I just trust that you have something for us today. As a body here at Calvary, as those that have come in that, that are just visiting or, or, or checking this out to see what's going on, Lord, I trust that you have something for them. And so, Father, I pray that you might do that work today among us. And Lord, let us bear witness to it. Let us see your glory at work. Let us see your hand and its magnificence and its power. Father, may we have eyes to see it. Father, we need you. I need you. Guard my mouth from error. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, church, I hope you've made your way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you're new with us, or maybe you weren't here last week, just to give you a little context as we're picking up here in chapter 5, we, we looked at the end of chapter 4 last week, and there Paul was using this family language, relating to the Corinthians as their spiritual father, in a sense. Uh, they were his, in a sense, they're, uh, they're his spiritual children, and thereby that relationship, he has the responsibility to speak into their lives, to care for them, to make sure they're doing well, and also a responsibility to rebuke and correct and, and make sure that they're staying the course. And what he left off with, the very last verse, and we didn't spend a lot of time on it last week, we just mentioned it, but we saw this in verse 21. It says, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? How, how should his visit look when he comes and he desires to be with them? He desires to come back very quickly to be among them. 
And he's saying, what's the nature of that going to be? Is it going to be like a father who has to bring correction? Or is it going to be in encouragement and uplifting? What, what's it going to be? And he's essentially saying, it's up to you. You decide on this. Will you change or will you not? Now, we may say, man, that, that sounds pretty intense. That's a pretty strong word, Paul, for favoritism, right? I mean, that's kind of what we've been talking about. Certainly, it goes deeper than that. But it, does that necessitate this kind of ultimatum? I'm coming with a rod or with gentleness. What's it going to be? Well, it turns out there's more than just what's been taking place in the first four chapters. Now, if it were just that, it still necessitates that kind of response from Paul. But there's more. What we're going to find out in chapter 5 and 6 and so on is there's other things that have been reported to him. And the list just goes on. And so we're going to jump into one of those here in chapter 5. I, I hope to make it all the way through chapter 5. We're going to linger in some parts a little more than others. Uh, some areas we won't look at very in-depthly. Uh, we'll just see it very quickly. But I, I hope to look at all of this today. So let's go ahead and just jump in here with verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Let me go ahead and just read the whole chapter through, and then we'll pray and go back. It says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him, who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that this spirit, excuse me, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Father, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom this morning, that you would give proper balance. And Lord, that all things be said and done in love. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we jump into this text, we see the situation here in Corinth as it begins to unfold. Paul is saying that it's been reported to him that there's immorality, immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Evidently, the situation there is there's a member of the church who's in an ongoing sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. Now, 
That's exactly what Paul's saying here. He says has, someone has. This is not a a one-time thing. This is an ongoing relationship. It's not as though it was a one-night stand that was repented of and they were able to move forward. Rather, they're persisting in this sin. It's his father's wife, again, probably his stepmom. We see that same language back in the Old Testament, so that's probably the case. Now, this situation is utterly immoral, and so much so that Paul even says, look look for the, the scope of this. In a city like Corinth, where immorality is prevalent, pervasive everywhere. Um, Sexual immorality is the norm. There's temples dedicated uh, to this very thing, to to sexual immorality and acts of worship and all of this stuff. And even so, all of the pagans within the culture of Corinth would look into the church at this situation and say, whoa, like that's next level even for us. We, We wouldn't go there. That, that's how severe this immorality is within the church. Now, when we, when we hear this, we, we would naturally say, well, surely the church is going to address this in some way. Surely this is going to be spoken of or the individual is going to um, be rebuked. How, how do you get to this place? We might think that that's going to be the natural response, that, that we'll see that from the church. But look at what we see in verse 2, what the actual scenario is. It says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So the, the natural response, what should happen is, as this kind of sin is exposed, as this kind of sin is understood, there should be a mourning, there should be a brokenness, a sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what we would expect, Right? that some in the church would be at that place. But not in Corinth. Rather, they're arrogant. Now, that that seems like a weird word to put following this, right? What what is the grounds of their arrogance? What do you mean by this, Paul? I I think two possibilities. One, it, it could be, remember, he's called them arrogant all throughout the last chapter. He's talked about this arrogance they have, this high spirituality, how they see themselves up on this pedestal and they look down at everyone else. So it may be that Paul here is saying you're arrogant because you're you're complicit in this. You know what's taking place, but you're so um, caught up in yourself and your high spirituality, you're just disconnected, you're complicit. So it could be that. It, It could be that they're just concerned more about their own spirituality and this is what's taking place over here, has nothing to do with me. Could be that. I think more likely it's this. They've become arrogant not simply because they're complicit in this sin, but they're condoning it. They're they're promoting this. They're boasting, he says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Now how in the world do you boast over this? How does a a church boast in this? Think for just a moment. If we were to go over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, Paul's writing and he says this. He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? The mentality, the theology behind this, 
says, well, if I'm a sinner and grace covers my sin, how do I get more grace? Well, I need more sin. So if I go on sinning, I sin all the more, grace will increase. So I'll just sin and sin and sin that grace might come and come. And, and Paul says, may it never be. No, that, that's not the purpose of grace. That, that is an abuse of grace. It's, it's not what grace is intended to do. But that's exactly what this church is doing. In fact, if, if we were to go over just a, a chapter over into chapter 6, and Lord willing, we'll be there next week or the week following, Paul says this in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's probably using some language that they would use. This, all things are lawful. You can hear the Corinthians walking around saying, all things are lawful for me. I've got grace. I can do whatever I want. This grace is sufficient to cover anything and everything. Therefore, I do whatever I want. They've essentially made grace a license for their sin. It's a license for them to go do whatever they want. Friend, that's not what grace does. That's an abuse of grace. And a church that condones sin, that refuses to be separate from sin, to rebuke sin, a church that does so will not last. Paul knows that. He knows the Corinthians, if they persist in this sin, if they persist in this mentality, they're done. It won't last. What should have been their response? He says, they should have mourned. They should have been broken. That, that's what grace produces. If we were to go over into the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, you can just write down this reference. Verse 11, Paul says this, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. What does grace do? It produces godliness. It instructs us to move away from godly desires, or excuse me, from, from ungodly desires, to move away from the desires of the flesh. It's the exact opposite of what's happening here in Corinth. Now, look at the connection here. This, this, this is interesting in verse 2. Much of what we're going to see and talk about this morning here is a topic known as church discipline. And we're going to see that here at the latter half of verse 2. But look what he says. He says, So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So had they had the proper response from grace... This mourning, this weeping, this sorrow, this humility that is seeking purity and holiness, it would have led them to the place of removing this individual from the congregation. Now that makes us really uncomfortable. You're saying godliness, humility, leads us to removing somebody from the church, leads us to excommunication, leads us to discipline? That, that makes us pretty uncomfortable, right? One, because at least those of us that are from the West, we don't really like to talk about discipline. And we don't really like to talk about authority. But you've also got this cultural resonance that we have today that, that I think we have bought into. 
So many churches have bought into. So, so much of modern evangelicalism for the last 50 years has bought into this idea that we can't judge anybody. Judge not lest you be judged. And that trumps everything else. In fact, I, I like what Chuck Lawless says. He writes it this way, talking about why churches don't practice discipline. He says this. He says, they don't want to appear judgmental. Judge not lest you be judged takes precedence over any scripture that calls for discipline, especially in a culture where political correctness rules the day. Judging, it seems, is deemed to be an unchristian act. But what's the very thing Paul says? If you go to the end of the chapter, he says, do you not judge those who are within the church? It's part of our role as believers to hold one another accountable. I think we've also bought into this lie in our modern Christian culture where we cop out under love. We use love as kind of a banner and we say, well, you know what? If I really love this guy, I think we probably ought not confront him. We might hurt his feelings. We might drive him away from the church. What if we offend him? The best place for him to be is right here with us. We can speak truth into his life do that just on a regular basis and so we, we can't have this difficult conversation here but rather we're just going to take it easy in hopes that him being around us it might just by osmosis him come to holiness and righteousness and repentance church that's not love if you allow someone to persist in sin that is not loving that that's actually a deep-rooted hatred towards someone think about this is it better to allow them to continue in their sin, to shipwreck their faith, and spend eternity separated from God, all for the sake of, I didn't want to offend them. I love them. I don't, I don't want to offend them. Is that more loving than having a difficult conversation, risking the offense in order that they might be saved, that they might repent and come back? Because that's, that's what he's saying. Look at verse 5. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the whole purpose in discipline. That's why we discipline our children, right? Because we love them, not because we're arrogant and we know it all. We love them and we desire good for them. So it is here. The most loving thing we can do is have those hard conversations to risk an offense in these situations in order that they might turn. This is the first of, we'll say, three observations I want to make about the nature of church discipline, okay? That it is loving and it is coming out of a brokenness, a brokenheartedness, a humility. That's, that's the manner in which it is brought forth. Verse 2, we see that. Grace, humility should have brought them to the place of removing him in hopes that he gets saved, that he turned, that, that, that he is saved. Now, let's, let's keep moving here, okay, because there's, there's more. I'm going to read, actually, out of the ESV for this, for the next three, two verses, three verses, verse 3, 4, and 5. I usually read out of the New American Standard. It's very literal, and there's a really good uh, hermeneutical term for the Greek behind this. It's very wordy, okay? And uh, so it kind of reads that way in the New American Standard. I think the ESV does a good job. Uh, keeping track with it. So let me read this once again for us. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I'm already, I've already pronounced judgment 
on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul, his desire once again is to be with this church. But he's writing this out because this address, addressing this issue, cannot wait on his arrival. It's not as though they should put it on the back burner, table this, until he show up. So no, he's, he's writing this letter, in part for this very issue, that he can convey what ought to take place. He's instructing the church, move forward with this. Go ahead and address this issue. And his expectation is that as the church comes together, that's typically what would happen in the reading of these letters. The church gathers together. There's one individual, pastor, elder type, that's going to stand up, read this before the body, and Paul's judgment will be made known to the congregation. They're all going to know. But what, what is his ambition here? What's he really commending? What's he calling forth for? It's not as though Paul here is in his apostolic authority saying, I banish this man. I excommunicate him. You go ahead and strike him from the roll. Dole it out. No, what's he saying? You come together as the body here. Here's the second observation about church discipline I want to make. It is a corporate action. It's not something that's done in a back corner or a side room. This level of discipline from the body comes from the body. It's not done by a pastor elder individually. It's not done by a board of deacons. It's not by some influential members of the church. It's, it's the body, corporately. And if this text isn't enough proof for us, we ought to think over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking there, and he describes how we ought to deal with conflict within the church. Very helpful, by the way. We need to know how to address conflict. Conflict happens. This is normal, okay? Um, what does he say there? He says, first of all, if you have an alt with your brother, what do you do? You go to him personally, individually. You address that. Let's say they don't repent. They don't see the error in their ways. Well, you take two or three witnesses with you. You go back and you try and address the situation once again. Well, if that person doesn't come to a place of repentance, what do you do then? Then you take them before the church, the whole church. Okay, let's say they don't listen to the church, then what do you do? That's it. You, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. There is no further court of appeal beyond the church. Under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, His leadership, His authority, the church then is the final authority under Christ the head in this matter. There is no appeal. You see that? Discipline is a corporate act. Something that happens among and from the body. And he's commending this to them, that they come together in this way and that this would likely be the outcome as he's already determined and as it necessitates that they would move forward. Now, I want to point out something else that he says here that kind of goes hand in hand with this. And it's kind of some weird language. 
talking about being turned over to Satan. You hear that, and it's like, whoa, what, what are you talking about, Paul? Now, if you have the NASB, like I do, verse 5 reads, I've decided to deliver. That I have decided is not in the Greek, okay? And that's why I went to the ESV. So it's actually the church here corporately is deciding to do this, all right? But what does he mean, deliver one over to Satan? He only uses this kind of language one other time over in 1 Timothy, and he's talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he delivers them over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme. Now there he's not talking about church discipline, so do these two always go hand in hand? I don't know that they have to. It certainly doesn't have that kind of language in Matthew 18, but here they seem to go together, all right? And I think what he has in mind as he says this is the Old Testament book of Job. You think back to Job chapter 2, and God is speaking with Satan. It's a really interesting exchange. If you've never read the book of Job, go check it out. But they're speaking to one another, and God says, I'll put Job in your hand. Basically, I'm handing him over to you. And what happens to Job? Destruction of his flesh. He doesn't die. The Lord says you can't kill him. You can't do that. But you can do everything else. I think in measure, that's what Paul's saying here. And here's the thing. I want us to see this. The, the corporate action. What is so distinct here. Remember what we talked about last week? How the kingdom is not mere words, but rather a demonstration of power. What, what does he say here? Look, look at the language. Look with me back in verse 4. With the power of our Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord Jesus. What this image is, is the church, the body of Christ, under Christ's headship, in his power, in his authority, the church exercising this act of removing this individual from their midst in hopes that he might be saved. It is a profoundly spiritual act and a demonstration of the authority and power of God working in His church. Church, what we do here together is substantial. It is significant. We're not just a group of people that get together and drink coffee and eat cookies. I talk about that a lot, by the way. But we're not. We're more than that. And here we see this demonstration of the body of Christ doing what it does, exercising power. And here it's seen in this act of discipline and love. So it's a corporate act, discipline is. Now let me point out something further. Well, let me say this first. The destruction of this man's flesh, what does he mean by that? Could be what he's talking about in Job, that he physically will be turned over and he may experience all sorts of hurt and anguish in his physical body. Very much could be the case. Could also be Paul often, as he talks about flesh, he contrasts it with the spirit, the flesh being the old man, the sinful man, the spirit, of course, being the new man, new in Christ, the new creation. I think there's also a flavor here of the hope and aspiration, the aim of this is that this man's sinful flesh, his sinful ways, his old man, would meet destruction in order that his new man would be present with the Lord. I think, I think there's a real reality of that in this text, that he be purified. Now, 
that leads us to the next observation. The third, if you will, and it's pretty similar to the first. Discipline is always remedial. Here's what I mean by that. The purpose is always to restore, to help, to heal. It is not malicious. It's not a malicious thing. It's that restoration would happen. Remember, this is that this man might be saved. That he would come back. It's not the end all that he's separated and that's it, we're done with him. No, the, the ongoing hope and aspiration is that he come to repentance and he come back in. That he be restored to fellowship. That, that's the hope here. I can think back to it was an earlier time in, in our ministry. It was actually my, my first year as a senior pastor. And we encountered... Uh, a pretty difficult situation in the life of the church. And that situation necessitated us walking through Matthew 18 as best we knew how. And I, looking back, I won't say we did it perfectly, but I think as much as I know myself and my own heart, I think we did it in the right spirit and with the right aim and ambition. And it was probably two of the hardest months of my life. Kathleen can bear witness to that. The meetings we would have with individuals, the meetings we would have with church leadership, the, the tears that were shed um, nightly, that, that included among Kathleen and I. We, we love these people dearly. That was a hard time. It's a hard season. But you know, a year and a half later, I got an email. It was a short little email. It was from this individual. It was the best email I've ever gotten in my life. All right? And they said, you know, I, I just need to say I'm sorry. And I sense that God wants to use us again. And I can't move forward until I say this. I'm sorry for the way this happened. And I'm sorry for the things that took place. And I want to walk in obedience. And I want to grow and I want to be useful again. And I just remember weeping at that email. I went back and looked at it last night. And I remember our response saying, absolutely, it's forgiven. We rejoice in this. And we will absolutely be praying for you to continue to walk the path of obedience. And as far as I know right now, as best I know, that individual's walking in obedience and plugged into a local body of believers. That's why you do discipline. So that that can happen. So that someone be restored and walk in obedience, to walk the path of obedience. That's why we do it, church. It's not out of anything malicious or ill-intended. It's all with that aspiration. If we were to go back over into Titus, quoted from it a moment ago. Chapter 2. You go a little bit further. He says that you were redeemed. You were redeemed from lawless deeds to be purified. To be purified as a people for His possession. 
The purpose of grace in our life is to purify us as a possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the aim of church discipline. Purification. Restoration. That's our hope. Now, what do we do with a text like this? I mean, this is, I know, this is kind of a weird Sunday morning, right? This is maybe not what you anticipated. Maybe you're a visitor for the first time and you're like, man, this church is okay. Talking about discipline. <laughs> Don't know if I'll come back. Those better be some good cookies, okay? <laughs> what do you do with this? Well, first of all, I hope that we don't have to act on this anytime soon, all right? That, that's my, my foremost hope, right? But church, if, if we want to be an accurate demonstration of the church of Jesus Christ in the community in which we live, we need to know how he expects us to operate, what that looks like, what the pursuit of holiness looks like in the life of the church. We need to know that. And praise God for his word that describes these things, these situations and circumstances, because this is real. This is real life. This is not all unicorns and rainbows, right? Life is messy, especially when you get a lot of really fallen, broken people together, right? So we need this. But let me, let me make three points of application here from this text that I think will be helpful for us. There's certainly more. You could go deeper. I encourage you this week, spend time in this text, linger, and I trust that the Lord can give you more application as you walk through this text. But let me give you three. The first is this. The first is a negative, so what it's not. What this text does not say is to remove yourself from the world in which we live, to disassociate from the world. Actually, Paul says that very thing. Look over with me, um, verse 10. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers and with the idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. He's not saying you disconnect from the world in which you live just because people are sinners. In a very real way, we as the church need to be present in the world in which we live. We need to be present, but we need to not be participants in worldliness. Let me say that again. We need to be present in the world and not participants in worldliness. Our lives should look different. We should be distinct as a people, as a church, in the world in which we live. We do not separate ourselves. We're not, we're not separatists that move up into the mountains. Even though the mountains are really pretty and nice, you can go visit. You don't stay there. right? Not by yourself anyways. So we need to be present. So he's not saying totally disassociate from every sinner, okay? What is he saying? Two points, I think, that are helpful for us. First is this. Let me actually go back. So I, I mentioned Titus 2 just a second ago, that Jesus Christ has redeemed us for the purpose of godliness, for the purpose of purity, that he's redeemed us from ungodliness and to purify us as a people for his own possession, right? That's the reason why you were saved. Look, look with me here in verse 7 of chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 still, verse 7. It says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Now, what's he talking about there? We didn't really... Uh, elaborate on that much, but, but just what he's using here is an analogy 
from Passover. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. When we think about Passover, in the week after Passover, the Jews would abstain from all leaven. They'd push it out. They wouldn't have it, wouldn't, wouldn't touch it. It was out of their homes. He's saying here that the church, in Jesus Christ being our atonement, being our Passover lamb, we now therefore push out the leaven of sin. We abstain from sin. Sin goes that way. We push it away. And that's what he's advocating here for. Clean out the old leaven, the sin in your life. Purge yourself from it that you may be a new lump. Now, don't miss this. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. You're not purging your life from sin in order that you get saved. You purge your life from sin because you are saved. That's the testimony of you being His. You being His possession. You're residing in Christ. The fact that you're moving in purity, in godliness, in sanctification. That you have that urge that my life needs to look different. Sanctification is a process. It takes a long time. Maybe a week, two weeks down the road, you look at your life and you say, well, it doesn't look much different. Well, okay, that's, that's okay. But in the scope of years, you ought to be able to look back and say, you know, I'm free from some of the things that I was hung up on years ago. My life looks different. I don't have the same ambitions. I don't have the same goals. I don't have the same desires. Your active sanctification your desire for holiness is a testimony to you being in Him, to you being a believer. Are you moving in sanctification? Are you being purified? I'm asking that. You don't have to answer it right now, but I hope you'll answer in your heart. Are you desiring righteousness? Are you desiring to look more and more like Jesus every day? And here's the implication, if not, if you're not desiring that, and you look back on your life and you say, you know, I don't see that ever. I don't see the presence of that desire ever in my life. Maybe you've been a member of a church for 50 years, but that's never happened in your life. You may be what Paul is comfortable calling this gentleman here. If you go over to verse 11... He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. From this man's action and his lack of repentance, he says he's so-called. He might say he's a believer. I don't know if he is or not. If there's no desire for purification, if there's no desire for holiness in your life, you may be a so-called brother. And you need to check your heart today and say, are you actually his? Do you belong to Jesus? If you've not, you, you can, and I encourage that. Maybe, maybe today's that day when you, it's the decisive yes. I want to move forward. I want to walk in righteousness and holiness and look more and more like Jesus. Maybe today's that day. Praise God for that, and I encourage you. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved, Paul says. Do that today. Don't wait. Don't miss the opportunity. But check your heart. See where you are today. Now, here's my last point of application that I think is just all over this text and really in much of the New Testament. As we talk about the gathered assembly of saints, the body of Christ coming together, believers, we see it all over the New Testament, Acts, 
the various letters all written to various churches. I think we see the very implicit reality of church membership. He's calling this body together and that one would be removed from their midst. Now I know we are a very diverse group of believers in here. People from all backgrounds, different denominations, different experiences. And I know that when I say the term church membership, everything that entails in everyone's mind is probably a little different, right? And I don't assume or take for granted that what we as modern evangelicals have in mind when we think of church membership is probably somewhat different from what Paul would describe it as. I, I, I don't disagree with that. That's probably true. But the question is, is that difference, is that potential discrepancy, does that make valid withholding from something that is so pervasive in the New Testament? I don't think so. It might be that we need to wrestle with that a little bit today or this week. What that looks like for us as a church at Calvary, what that looks like for each of us as individuals. It's okay to wrestle. That, that's okay. You don't always have to decide things in the moment. It's okay to wrestle. Maybe that's where we are today. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, as I do, I believe the worship team's going to come up, and there's going to be some folks that would love to pray with you out here. I'm going to go out there as well. I'd love to pray with you. I hope foremost that you'll examine your heart today. See if you're walking the path of obedience. See if there's a desire and a passion for holiness in your life. And if there's not, I encourage you to come to Jesus. You're welcome. There's room. Don't miss this opportunity. I'm going to pray and you be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning. Let me pray. Father, I thank you again for today. I thank you for your church here at Calvary and, Lord, what you're doing. And, Father, I just pray that Lord, we seek to, as my brother said earlier, Lord, that, that we would seek your kingdom and righteousness, knowing that everything else will be added. And Lord, I just pray that we might look more and more like an accurate demonstration of your church, of your body, that functions in accordance to the head. As Jesus, our head, speaks and desires, we, we move. And we function as we should. And I just pray, Lord, that as, as we get in your word, Lord, that you would refine us more and more and more. Lord, that we might look more and more like you. That we might operate as we should, as the hands and feet of Jesus, to function in this broken world. Father, I pray that you might be so gracious as to allow that to happen. Lord, grow us in righteousness and holiness. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.